This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to our program today, and thank you for tuning in to Trumpet Hour. I'm Jeremiah Jacques. And for the first report of today's episode, we'll take a look at the Biden administration's efforts to bring about a diplomatic reset with the Islamic Republic of Iran. These efforts have been underway for as long as Biden has been in the White House, and now it appears that a new nuclear deal is in the works. This new deal is apparently even worse than the notorious nuclear deal that President Obama helped to spearhead back in 2015. And we'll hear all about this in a report from trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. In our second segment, we'll take a look at the influence of China and America in Southeast Asia. This is a region where China has been growing far more aggressive in recent years, and one would think that its aggression would make the nations of this region view China negatively. But instead, these countries are increasingly behind China, and they're growing less and less supportive of the United States. We'll hear the details of this trend and take a look at where it's leading in a report from trumpet writer Peter Van Halteren. The third story of today's show will look at Canada's legal maneuvering to prioritize all things LGBTQ. This is happening in a way that precludes churches and religious people from having really any legal method of dissenting on trans ideology and other radical ideologies. We'll hear the details of this from trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau. And then our last word today is about a landmark document that came into effect on this day in history, back in 1788, and the reason why this document helped to bring opportunity and stability to so many people. So that'll be our final segment, and we'll begin now with the U.S.'s overtures to Iran in this report from Mihailo Zekic. Since Joe Biden entered the White House, he has worked hard to get a diplomatic reset with Iran. The biggest demonstration of this is his push for a new Iranian nuclear deal. Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry called the original 2016 nuclear deal the worst foreign policy blunder in American history. For our June 2022 print issue, we wrote, quote, Shockingly, there is nothing substantially new about this new deal. Those who have followed the negotiations are feeling a sickening sense of deja vu. In fact, this may prove to be the new worst foreign policy blunder in American history. But as hyperbolic as sentences like that are, as of June 2023, it looks like the new Iran nuclear deal is even worse than most could have imagined. I used the present tense in that last sentence deliberately. Evidence suggests a new deal has almost been reached. Haven't heard of it before? Well, as far as the White House is concerned, that is a good thing, because publicity could torpedo the deal. Heshmatollah Falahat Pisha, who used to lead the Foreign Policy and National Security Committee in Iran's parliament, told Iranian media the United States and Iran are close to a so-called unwritten deal. Iran International translated Falahat Pisha's comments on June 12, quote, This means that the American side will no longer enforce the maximum pressure policy of President Donald Trump, close its eyes to some of Iran's energy deals, and allow the release of Iran's frozen funds in return for Iran refraining from expanding its nuclear program more than the current level. Falahat Pisha claimed neither side wants a return to the 2016 nuclear deal, for Iran returning to the old deal would mean it would have to give up its stockpile of 60% enriched uranium, plus its nearest centrifuges. He also claimed the U.S. is afraid of public backlash if a deal is made official. If Falahat Pisha's words are to be taken 
at face value, this means the United States is willing to give Iran a secret, under-the-table deal. Only this deal is not a deal. All Iran is offering is a promise never to enrich its uranium to weapons grade. Weapons grade is 90%. Iran this year reached 84% enrichment. Even the 60%, which it has been stockpiling for several years now, has no known civilian application. Iran is the only state without nuclear weapons to enrich uranium to such levels. Anybody should be able to see Iran's promises are completely empty. The U.S. isn't offering much either that it isn't already giving to Iran. Earlier this year, Biden waived sanctions allowing Russia to cooperate with Iran's nuclear program. America has already made clear it wants to drop its Iranian nuclear sanctions. The unwritten deal, then, means Iran can keep doing what it's doing, and America won't get in the way. All Iran has to do is give its word that it would never develop nuclear weapons. America knows Iran's word is worthless. So what the deal actually means is this. America has agreed for Iran to have a bomb as long as the rest of the world doesn't find out about America's acquiescence. It's not only the parliamentarians' comments that suggest an unwritten deal is in the works. The U.S. has, in recent days, made some interesting sanctions decisions. For example, on June 8th, the United States waived sanctions on Iraq, allowing Iraq to pay about $2.76 billion to Iran in energy debts. South Korea is also holding about $7 billion worth of assets that the U.S. is trying to get unfrozen. Anonymous sources who spoke to the Korea Economic Daily said the conditions for the release include spending the money on public expenses like COVID-19 vaccines, even as the world finally moves on from public health emergencies and vaccine mandates. One way or another, America seems all of a sudden eager to send Iran buckets of money. Iran itself has also opened up regarding a possible deal. Iranian Foreign Ministry spokesman Nasser Kanani confirmed Iran has indirect talks with the U.S. about a nuclear deal in the third country of Oman. Kanani rejected the idea that there is already an interim deal in place, but on June 11th, Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei says he sees his words nothing wrong with a nuclear deal. Khamenei specified, quote, the infrastructure of our nuclear industry should not be touched, end quote. Sanctions relief and protecting nuclear industry are among the deal caveats Falahat Pisha mentioned. These examples may be circumstantial, but the timing is nevertheless interesting, and they may even suggest an informal deal is already in place. Iran has demonstrated that if it ever gets a nuclear weapon, it has the will to use it. Iran is the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism. It calls for Israel, another nuclear state, to be wiped off the map. Its religious ideology maintains that sowing global chaos brings the return of their version of the Messiah closer. The original nuclear deal did nothing to stop Iran from getting a nuclear bomb. It gave Iran access to billions of dollars through sanctions relief while postponing the time Iran could so-called legally enrich uranium to weapons-grade levels. But there was at least some silver lining to the original deal in the form of increased monitoring from the International Atomic Energy Agency and the destruction of uranium stocks. This current hinted informal deal doesn't even deliver so-called benefits like that. There is no signed document the international community can compare Iran's actions with. There are no punishment mechanisms to go after Iran for non-compliance. All this deal would be is a declaration 
that Iran could go full steam ahead with its nuclear program as long as it lets America save face. It's one thing for the U.S. to let Iran have the bomb out of incompetence and weakness. But America's policies go beyond that. The White House could still look the other way to Iran's nuclear program without giving it billions in sanctions relief. America's actions suggest the government actively wants Iran to get a nuclear bomb. The question is, why? The trumpet has written extensively on a prophecy in 2 Kings 14. It reads as follows, quote, For the Eternal saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, for there was not any shut-up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And the Eternal said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. That was verses 26 and 27 of 2 Kings 14. Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Fleury writes in The King of the South, quote, The Bible shows that anciently God raised up the kingdom of Israel to represent him. Satan attacked that nation in every way he could. History shows that at one point an enemy almost completely destroyed it. But God raised up a flawed human king to temporarily save the nation. Further down, it is important to understand the prophetic principle of duality. History is repeating itself today. Just what is the prophetic name of Israel? In our day, the emphasis is on three physical nations of Israel, America, Britain, and the Jewish nation in the Middle East, end quote. Iran's desire to wipe Israel off the map means it wants to blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. By giving Iran the means to get a nuclear bomb, America is helping it do that. Iran got help through Barack Obama's 2016 nuclear deal, and it is still getting help today. Many can see that Joe Biden is not really the man in charge of the U.S. government. Barack Obama still casts a long shadow in Washington, D.C. The news of the current unwritten deal means, as Mr. Fleury writes, quote, President Obama shares the goal to blot out the name of Israel, end quote. Find out why by reading the chapter Obama and the King of the South in Mr. Fleury's free book, The King of the South. This is Trumpet Hour on KPCG 101.3. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and the United States has long had immense sway over the tremendously important region of Southeast Asia. But now that influence is evaporating and China is moving in. And we'll hear all about that now in this report from Peter Van Halteren. China's influence over Southeast Asia is on the rise at the expense of its greatest rival. The United States. Over the past five years, China has become much more aggressive in its military and diplomatic approach in Southeast Asia. And one might think this would negatively affect China's standing in the region, but the opposite is true. A new study done by the Lowy Institute actually shows that China's influence in the region is rapidly increasing. This study is called Asia Power Snapshot, China and the United States in Southeast Asia. 
and a study reveals that the United States has lost influence to China in all four categories measured by the Asia Power Index. These categories are economic relationships, defense networks, diplomatic influence, and cultural influence. The report shows that of the 10 countries in the Association of Southeast Asia Nations, the U.S. is only most influential in two of them, the Philippines and Singapore, who are United States allies. In the other eight countries, including Thailand, who is an American ally, China beats the U.S. in overall influence. Now, the study is based on the Asia Power Index, which uses a method in which it assigns up to 100 points to the United States and China based on their relative performance. These points are given based on 42 different indicators across the four different measures. And the index reveals China's increasing influence in Southeast Asia. In 2018, for instance, China led the United States with 52 points for China to 48 for America. And in 2022, this lead had increased to 54 for China and 46 for the U.S. In terms of the four measures included in the Asia Power Index, China was far more influential economically in 2022 and also had a considerable lead in diplomatic influence. And while America's defense networks and cultural influence are still higher, China's performance in these last two measures has also improved significantly since 2018. Many states in Southeast Asia, such as Vietnam, Malaysia, and Indonesia, are worried about China's more aggressive military actions. And these countries have looked for closer military cooperation with the U.S., but they've also been very careful not to antagonize China. The study, however, shows that even America's military influence in the region is weakening. In Indonesia, the U.S. lead over China in defense networks decreased in the past years, from 69 points for America and 31 for China, to only 55 points for America and 45 for China. The survey also shows that the country losing the most overall influence from the U.S. is Malaysia. Between 2018 and 2022, China's lead in the country rapidly increased from 55 for China and 45 for America to 63 for China compared to only 37 for America. And many of these nations in Southeast Asia lie on or near the South China Sea and other vital sea passages in the area. And that allow them to control entry and exit points of these important trade routes. Both Indonesia and Malaysia play an important role in controlling a sea passage called the Malacca Strait. And as China gains more influence in these countries, it could position itself to assert control over this sea gate. Trumpet writer Jeremiah Jacques wrote in an article a few years back showing just how China is gaining more and more control of this Malaccan Strait. And he highlights just how important this sea passage is. He writes, quote, with more than 90% of all crude oil flowing through the South China Sea passing through Malacca, the strait is regarded as the world's second most important shipping choke point, surpassed only by the Strait of Hormuz. And as China continues to deepen its ties with Malaysia, it is increasingly positioned to assert control over Malacca. This translates into bolstering China's ability to dictate who can enter and exit the South China Sea, unquote. China's increasing control over important sea passages or sea gates is prophetically significant. In Deuteronomy 28, God delivered a sobering warning to the nations of Israel. If the people disobeyed him and turned to sin, he would give strategic sea gates over to their enemies. In verse 52, it says, quote, and he shall besiege you in all your gates until your high and fenced walls come down, wherein you trust, throughout all your land. And he shall besiege you in all your gates throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. To prove for yourself that the modern descendants of Israel today are mainly America and Britain, you can read our free booklet, United States and Britain in Prophecy. And you will understand that verse 52 here is talking about how enemies such as China will use these sea gates to besiege America and Britain. 
In an article called China is Steering the World Toward War, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote about this prophecy. He said, quote, Russia and China are militarizing the most important trade routes traversing the Asian continent. This prophecy is being fulfilled before our eyes. America's enemies are securing shipping lanes and creating economic alliances that will very soon enable them to choke off America's supply lines. Soon America will find it impossible to import oil and other necessities." Unquote. One area where we can see this prophecy being fulfilled is in the South China Sea and the Malacca Strait, where we can see that America's greatest rival, China, is increasingly seeking control. And control over the sea gates really strengthened China's economic position, as almost a third of total global sea trade goes through the South China Sea. The study done by the Lowy Institute also confirms that China is getting more powerful economically, and it is doing so at the expense of the U.S. The study reported that in 2022, U.S. economic relationships were weaker than those of China in every single country of Southeast Asia. And China has also increasingly taken over the role as lender of last resort, helping countries in the region during times of economic crises and debt. In many ways, China has replaced the U.S. in bailing out these indebted and low-income countries. Another study done by ISEAS Yusuf Aishek Institute in Singapore showed that the people in these countries sense that China is becoming more and more powerful. The study reported that a majority of respondents in a poll said that China is now the most dominant economic and political strategic power in Southeast Asia. China's soaring influence in Southeast Asia at the expense of America is not surprising to those familiar with Bible prophecy. In Revelation 16 and verse 12, the Bible warns that the way of the kings of the East is to be prepared. Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has explained that the kings of the East is a multinational Asian alliance that will rise in the end time. Another prophecy in Ezekiel 38 talks about the land of Gog and Magog and a prince of Meshach and Tubal. As Mr. Flurry has explained, Meshach and Tubal are biblical references to what we know as Russia today. And the land of Magog mainly refers to China and other nearby Asian nations. So this prophecy indicates there will be an Asian alliance led by Russia and that China will be the secondary power in this alliance. Several other Asian nations will stop looking to the United States for support and will join the Kings of the East Alliance to back Russia and China. The trends we now see underway in Southeast Asia and other areas of the world show that this is already beginning to happen. In our free booklet, Russia and China in Prophecy, we wrote, quote, The Kings of the East are becoming restless. U.S. influence in and access to the Korean Peninsula, Chinese and Soviet coasts, Asia-Pacific sea lanes, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, Micronesia, Polynesia, and Papua New Guinea are declining. Unquote. In Leviticus 26, God warned what would happen to the modern nations of Israel if they disobeyed him. In verse 19, God says he would break the pride of their power. And this applies mostly to America and Britain, who are the modern descendants of Israel. God has broken the pride of the power in America, and we can see that happening more and more today. While America still has unmatched power, it is completely lacking the will to use it. And this weakening will is paving the way for the kings of the East, as China and other Asian nations come together, forming a global superpower. In Russia and China in Prophecy, we wrote, quote, the perceived weakening of U.S. global influence is driving China and its Asian neighbors to position themselves as the next great power block. The new order of global powers is emerging precisely as depicted in Bible prophecy. Unquote. China's rising influence in Southeast Asia is just one area where we can clearly see all these Bible prophecies being fulfilled. And to learn more about these prophecies and what to watch regarding these nations, Order a free copy of our booklet, Russia and China in Prophecy.
This is Trumpet Hour. Thank you once again for joining us on the show today. For the next segment here, we'll take a look at Canada. Canada's progressive government is all in on LGBTQ ideologies and the way the law functions. Individuals have essentially no way to push back on religious grounds, as we'll hear about now in this report from Mr. Abraham Blondeau. Pride season is quickly becoming Canada's celebration of national pride. Over the past three years, events celebrating traditional values have been relegated. Pride celebrations have dwarfed anything Canada did for the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II, the Queen's funeral, or even King Charles's coronation. Pride flags and merchandise are mixed in with Canada Day gear at many major stores. Catholic schools fly rainbow flags for the month of June. Small towns in the most remote parts of Canada and conservative strongholds will have pride flags displayed around town or rainbow-painted crosswalks. The pride community and values are being permanently embedded into the culture and identity of Canada. In fact, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and most other government leaders believe accepting promoting and embracing two SLGBTQI plus values is what defines you as Canadian. There is not a culture war going on inside of Canada. The two SLGBTQI plus side has already won. The federal government, Charter of Rights and Freedoms, courts, law, and media are all aligned against religion, the Bible, and traditional family. These pillars of civilization are being systematically dismantled and blotted out. Canada is one step away from being a nation where there is no room for those who do not embrace the 2SLGBTQI plus movement. The defeat of the family and religion does not bode well for the future of the country. First off, what does 2SLGBTQI acronym actually mean? This definition is what the government of Canada uses to define the, the gay trans community. So from their website, it says, quote, 2S at the front recognizes two spirit people as the first of that community. L is for lesbian, G is gay, B bisexual, T transgender, Q queer, I intersex, considers sex characteristics beyond sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. Plus, is inclusive of people who identify as part of sexual and gender diverse communities who use additional terminologies, end quote. So this alphabet soup acronym is used to describe a, a, a wide swath of people that actually make a small part of society as a whole. Yet this small group has radically increased the promotion of their lifestyle over the past few years across the country. And one of the main objectives of the trans movement is to make that lifestyle normal to children. This is why they have drag queen story times at public libraries and schools. CBC, the state broadcaster, created an explanation video for children that was broadcast to the country using taxpayer money. Targeting children to accept an ideology is key to achieving victory in a long-term ideological war. And this effort is being aided by government policies. Prime Minister Trudeau intends to make Canada the international safe haven for trans people. He recently announced a partnership with Rainbow Road, which is an organization that helps uh, gain trans people emigrate from places where they might have laws that ban that kind of lifestyle. This partnership will allow Rainbow Road and the Canadian government to seek to relocate people from around the world into Canada. And during the announcement, the Prime Minister defined Canada as freedom is free, and that the people having freedom here, that people have safety here from that lifestyle, that that defines what Canada is. And during this announcement, he also attacked uh, someone in his own country. New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs introduce uh, policy 713, which aims to actually protect uh, and give guidance to the school board on how to treat uh, the LGBTQ kids in the school system. 
And so the main point of contention is that a teacher or a school would need to obtain parental consent of a child who wants to change their name uh, or pronouns at the school if they're under the age of 16. So this is what Prime Minister Trudeau, all the human rights, trans groups' rights have a problem with, is that they don't want parents having authority over their kids or that the kids need consent to go along with this gender ideology. And so in the wake of this this massive debate going on, uh, it's been revealed that schools have been hiding uh, the, some of the decisions kids have made. They'll use their, their name they're given at birth to the parents, and then at school they'll use the name that the child wants them to use. And so the, the fact that this policy 713 hasn't completely eroded the authority of the family in a child's life, that's what's under attack. And the attack has been so brutal from the federal government, from human rights groups, and even from within uh, Blaine Higgs' own party, is that it threatens to actually topple the entire government. And so the progressive conservative party is going to do a leadership review that might, uh, it could possibly spark an early election in New Brunswick. But this shows you just the, the amount of power and influence that these groups have in Canada at the moment. That... Uh, a, a premier of a province, like a state governor, same same uh, comparison, that their government would actually be toppled because they didn't go far enough into the trans, uh, protecting the trans movement or giving in to their demands on how they want to treat children. Just really reveals where Canada is right now. And so this uh, attack framed by the prime minister on New Brunswick this is all part of a larger narrative that the media is making, uh, that, that the LGBTQ community is under attack from Canadians. And this is following on uh, the boycotts in the United States uh, of Bud Light and Target over the aggressive marketing of this to, uh, uh, to Americans. Yet in Canada, there hasn't been any similar public boycott. Uh, it's all been pretty quiet, and yet they're using using events like this to uh, promote this narrative. Because if you create a narrative, if you create a crisis, it allows the government to react and put in the laws they actually want to with less pushback. And so several prominent government ministers um, and several, several uh, advocacy groups have been calling on the government to uh, legislate harsher penalties on hate crime laws uh, to give exclusive protection to drag events and safe spaces for uh, for the community. So this would the the goal and goal here of this narrative is to give the government a reason to implement laws that would finally uh, take away all parental rights and then be, take away any right to question or push back against this movement in your community or at your school. That's what they're actually targeting to do. So a central part of this narrative uh, that the mainstream media has really been going after is the idea that Christian churches are the are the tip of the spear in promoting hatred towards the LGBTQ community. So several exposés have been done, uh, one by CBC on Liberty Coalition Canada, which is a, a conservative Christian advocacy group, which is basically it's it's networking churches, uh, politicians, different groups together to promote candidates that uh, are pro-religious uh, rights and that oppose uh, the aggressive push of LGBTQ uh, events and ideology on families. So the, the way this is being framed is that religion is the problem. The religion is why hatred is spreading towards LGBTQ people, when in reality, that's not the case at all. In reality, the LGBTQ community is the, is the aggressor uh, in society, it isn't Christian churches or religion. And this is all connected to uh, a major hearing happening uh, right now with the CRTC. So the CRTC is the Canadian Radio, Television and Communications Commission. And it's a group of nine people uh, that regulates... Uh, television, radio, uh, the internet now, after the passing of Bill C-11. 
And so a LGBTQ rights group called EGAL Canada submitted uh, a letter in April asking the CRTC, the banned Fox News, uh, from cable packages in Canada. And the reason for this is uh, it was content created by Tucker Carlson on the shooting in Nashville um, of a, a trans shooter against a Christian school. And so uh, the group published a letter um, to the CRTC and noticed this part of the letter, quote, During the segment, Carlson made the inflammatory and false claim that trans people are targeting Christians. To position trans people in existential opposition to Christianity is an incitement of violence against trans people that is plain to any viewer, end quote. So the most important part of this filing that the CRTC is considering is that if you say that the Bible or Christianity um, is existentially opposed to the trans movement, to the lifestyle of trans people, then that is incitement of violence or hatred. So think about where this is, is leading. The CRTC still has to make a decision on this, uh, but this could, could effectively hinder uh, the ability of, uh, of anyone in, in the country of having an opinion against the trans movement, of whether it's based on what the Bible says or even just a personal belief. Why are all the offices of authority and power on the side of the trans community? Well, that is because the law in Canada has been engineered in such a way that it can be weaponized against its own people to further an agenda. So the law in Canada, the Constitution, including the Charter of Rights and Freedom, it's been developed by, at, from its founding, uh, when Pierre Elliott Trudeau and his administration drafted it, uh, through uh, a radical left Supreme Court uh, over the past 40 years, um, where it allows the government um, to basically choose a social cause and ensure that the desired outcome uh, is reached through the law. So unlike the American Constitution, Canada's charter does not guarantee equal treatment, but equal outcomes. So as long as the outcome is equal, it doesn't matter how uh, a, a government or an organization gets to that outcome. In addition to this, you have Section 1 of the Charter, which allows the government to infringe on rights for reasonable, reasonable ways. And so how this has been interpreted by a Supreme Court um, that has been left-leaning uh, is that over time, churches have diminished in, in their uh, freedom uh, of expression, in their religious freedoms. And so these different social movements, like abortion, uh, like the trans movement, they've actually um, gained ground legally to the point where, um, as I'll go through in a minute, um, in a court of law, they're almost guaranteed to have uh, a favorable outcome. So in, in 2012, Trinity College, uh, which is in uh, British Columbia, they opened a, a law school. Um, and to, to enter to, to the law school, you have to enter into a covenant. Um, it's a Christian university run by evangelical group. Um, we're all students and faculty that you have to pledge to abstain from sexual intimacy that violates the sacredness of marriage between a man and a woman. And so uh, this uh, covenant uh, was challenged by uh, people in the LGBT community as uh, unconstitutional. And so this is what the Supreme Court ruled on this, on this issue. Uh, the majority of the court found that the law societies were entitled to violate Trinity's religious freedom in the name of charter values. So Trinity's covenant impose inequitable barriers on entry, especially for LGBTQ students. The students could violate the covenant because that was charter values. Uh, what's interesting about this decision is that charter values isn't in the, uh, isn't written in the constitution. Um, and it doesn't include religious freedom, which is listed uh, in a charter. But it, but instead it's the, the values that the Supreme Court decided is Canadian. And these run along the social justice um, 
equity terms. Uh, this is just one example of how the charter is used to, um, to supersede uh, religious rights in Canada. Uh, another decision that this just came by uh, this week in Canada, uh, the week of, of June uh, 21st here, the Manitoba Court of Appeals uh, decided it was, um, it was legal for the government to close churches, temples, and mosques during the COVID uh, lockdowns. And the court ruled, quote, freedom of religion can be limited when the exercise of it can be interfere with the rights of others, end quote. So this is yet another precedent being set where the government sides against religion in the favor of a government agenda. Then there's the example of Bill Wuckott. So in 2016, during the Toronto Gay Pride Parade, uh, he, he put out flyers that had information that the uh, trans community didn't like. It had religious messaging in it and had medical information inside of it. And so um, he was uh, given a civil lawsuit of $104 million. Um, but after, as the lawsuit went on, um, the, the gay activists eventually dropped the lawsuit, but the Ontario government decided to pick it up in 2018 um, and actually charge uh, Bill Whatcott for the crime of inciting hatred, all just for handing out flyers at a, a gay pride parade that were proven in court to be factually correct. And so the Attorney General of Ontario, they issued a nationwide arrest warrant, which is usually reserved for serial killers and that, and that sort of thing. Um, and that trial is still going on today. In fact, on June 21st, 2023, um, that's when the trial will take place uh, that um, that could uh, finally have an outcome on that case. But this shows that under the Canadian Constitution, the laws, they don't protect an individual or a church from having uh, a doctrine or a point of view that is different than the agenda uh, of the Canadian government. So those those examples are of charter cases involving the Constitution, but all across Canada, there are many provincial laws that have been engineered to uh, attack the family unit. And so in, in particular in Ontario, they've been very aggressive in changing the definition of family in law to where it's just a mere contractual agreement. And they've been allowing um, other relationships uh, outside of uh, a, a father and a mother to claim the status of family, which has just diluted the authority and, and the family unit in in the country, but also in the sense of law. It's getting to the point where the authority of parents over their own children is to the point where the state has more right to say over what the child does than even the parents do. And so there's there's over a dozen laws where this is this is the end game of why they've put in that way. It's it's all about social engineering, getting a desired outcome in your society. And so what's behind these plans? What's behind this agenda? So why would you need to create a charter of rights and freedoms that can be weaponized against your own people? What's, what's the idea of pushing so aggressively this trans movement on Canada, even using the weight of the federal government uh, to bring down a government uh, in a province? Well, this is all part of an agenda to, to fundamentally transform Canada. So the late Herbert W. Armstrong talked about the communist infiltration of the United States and the other uh, nations, Western nations, and at the core of communist thinking is the destruction of the family. So communism is built around replacing the authority and the responsibility of the family with that of the state. And so as long as the family exists, it, it remains a bulwark against uh, a communist uh, government, against communist ideology. And so when a government makes family a mere con contractual arrangement, when it removes the authority of the parents over the children and replaces uh, the education of cultural uh, norms, and of religion and of all these things that the parents would pass on to their children when the state replaces that and takes over 
that is the perfect circumstances to have a communist uh, takeover of your nation, to change the culture. And that's exactly what's going on in Canada. So the trans movement, the LGBTQ movement, that is just being used as the latest pawn in this communist transformation. So for decades, laws have been made in Canada that destroy the family. Now there is a cultural movement in the trans movement that seeks to annihilate the Bible-based definition of family. So once you can destroy the family, then you can finish transforming the country. That's what this is really all about. In the missing dimension, in the missing dimension in sex, written by the late Herbert W. Armstrong, he said, There has been floated abroad the delusion that whatever is new and different is more progressive and modern, and therefore better. Far more often it is retrogression. The foundational bulwark of any healthy, stable, and permanent society is the family unit. End quote. In Canada, the goal is to completely transform uh, the nation, the culture, into a communist dictatorship. And so the trans movement is being used just as a pawn in the culture wars. Yet they have been very successful. And in fact, it's to the point where even legally and culturally, uh, they have won that battle. To learn more about this prophesied change and attack in our nations, Please read our books, Redefining Family and America Under Attack. Well, today is June 21st of 2023, and it was 235 years ago today, in 1788, that the Constitution of the United States of America officially came into effect. The state of New Hampshire ratified it on that day, becoming the ninth state to do so, and that made it official. The supreme law of the land, the foundation of our republic. And the Constitution is a truly extraordinary document. British Prime Minister William Gladstone called it, quote, the most wonderful work ever struck off at a given time by the brain and purpose of man. The writer George Landreth wrote, what the Constitution did alongside the Declaration of Independence to provide, promote, and protect the freedom, opportunity, and security of the average person is almost impossible to overstate." End quote. So it's plain to most any clear-eyed observer that the U.S. Constitution is an extraordinary document. Even a cursory glimpse into its pages and its impact on U.S. and even world history makes that clear to most anyone. But what is not as readily apparent is the main reason why the Founding Fathers were able to make this document so extraordinary. Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote about this in the Trumpet's March 2011 issue, and he explains why that was. He writes, Our Founding Fathers did their best to make the Bible the foundation of that great document. The Constitution contains numerous biblical principles and doctrines from the Bible. That doesn't mean it's on the same level as the Bible, but neither is it on the human level, as many people are prone to believe. End quote. And then a little further down, he reiterates that, writing, The Constitution is the foundation of our Republic, and the Ten Commandments were, in many ways, the foundation of the Constitution. Mr. Fleury also quotes James Madison, one of the Founding Fathers, who said, We have staked the whole future of America's civilization 
upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. End quote. So that's really at the heart of why the Constitution is such an astounding document. It was founded largely on biblical principles, and it aimed to give individuals freedom within their self-governance as laid out by the Ten Commandments. And it actually only works with a people who will govern their own behavior according to those biblical principles and laws. Here's a little more from Mr. Fleury's article. In this section, he brings it into the present day, showing that the United States is suffering serious internal turmoil because the people are failing to govern themselves or to really uphold law. And that's not only with the increasing number of secular people, but even those who profess to follow the Bible. He writes, Christians are supposed to be people who follow Christ, the lawgiver. This is how they got their name Christian. But whether secular or religious, we are racing into lawlessness, and our nation is plunging toward catastrophe. Any good history book will show us that. And then skipping down a little, he continues, Our forefathers believed that if we didn't keep God's Ten Commandments, our Constitution and Republic would collapse. We dare not take this vitally important subject lightly. Everything is at stake. So on this anniversary of the Constitution coming into effect, it's a great time to consider what made America so exceptional and made it such a place of opportunity for so many people and such a stabilizing force even far beyond its borders. And it's a time to consider really why so much of that now seems to be coming to an end. The name of that article by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Cheryl Fleury is The Bible and the Constitution. And you can find a link to that in the show notes for today's program, both on SoundCloud and on thetrumpet.com. And you'll also find links there to the articles that today's reports were based on and to the materials mentioned in those reports as well. You can find all of that at our website, thetrumpet.com. Please remember to send any comments or questions you may have about today's episode to letters at thetrumpet.com. I'd like to thank my guests, Mihailo Zekic, Peter Van Halteren, and Mr. Abraham Blondeau for their contributions to today's episode. Many thanks also to Nicholas Irwin and Jesse Hester for taking care of the audio work for this episode. And I'll leave you today with this quote from the founding father and second U.S. president, John Adams. You will never know how much it has cost my generation to preserve your freedom. I hope you will make good use of it. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. <laughs>